0: Welcome to Historicity, where we turn back time to see how cities got to be the way they are. I'm Angus Lockyer. I've been teaching and writing history for over 20 years. But when I want to think about how the past became the present and where we might go next, I head outside, walk the streets and pick apart the layers.
1: And I'm Yelena Sofranievich. I'm fascinated by the way that history and politics and culture intersect how our imperial pasts have left their trace on our material present, not least in the streets.
0: Our walks around Tokyo so far have stayed on dryish land, though we've been able to discover a few waterways, even though most of those have been buried under modern development. Tokyo doesn't stay still, though, or earthbound.
1: As ever, a couple of notes before we get underway. We've designed these walks to follow on foot, but we know that you might not be on the streets. You can download maps and transcripts from the episode notes. If you're on the street, you'll find that we're quite fast walkers. But of course, you can listen to this at your own pace. Just change the speed on your podcast app to suit yourself.
0: In this final bonus walk, we're going to be riding a train out into the bay to land that once was water. If you're listening to this while you're also on the train, you'll find that there are sometimes longish stretches between the various sites and other places you may want to get off and see things along the way. Just pause the podcast when you do. We'll catch it at Shimbashi Station, where rails first began to transform Tokyo, and to connect it to the world. We'll meet you there. So here we are at Shimbashi Station in a very nondescript plaza right outside one of the exits. Office buildings around us, the train tracks at our back, a few taller buildings behind them, slightly newer. But there's not much to see here, even though this was the first station in Tokyo. It opened in 1872 as the Tokyo terminus of the first bit of rail in Japan, which led down to Yokohama, where the foreigners were. And it remained a terminus for 20 years. Tokyo Station, we've heard this in other walks, only came along later. And it remains a transport hub. The first subway in Tokyo didn't come here, but it was extended here in 1934. And so today it remains a very important commuter intersection with all kinds of lines coinciding. The original building for the station has actually been reconstructed a couple of hundred yards down the street. But we're here not to take one of the older lines, but to get on a new one, the automated Yurikamome line. We can see the entrance straight ahead of us. It's named after a black-headed gull, which is common to Tokyo Bay, and it's the official bird of the metropolis. This line was opened in 1995, allowing people to get out to the artificial islands in the bay, specifically Odaiba, which we're going to be seeing from the train. So we're going to head for the entrance to that station, the Yuri Kamome station now, and we'll meet you when we're on board. So we've made our way up several escalators now, and we've made our way onto the train. We're sitting at the back of the train, looking at the end of the line and beyond that into the city. This way, we'll get a better view as the train goes past. We're underway. So the history of Tokyo Bay is, in the first instance, a history of reclamation, of turning water into land. All the land over which we'll be passing 400 years ago would have been underwater part of the bay. The first extension of land into water took place 400 years ago under the Tokugawa we've already found in earlier walks that places even close to the castle were a cove, Hibiya, Marunochi. And this area, the station into which we're now pulling is called Shiodome, was also turned from water into land. We're leaving Shiodome now. And on our right, again, we're facing backwards. We can begin to see one of these earlier bits of reclamation Hamarikyu Gardens, green patches amidst the tall buildings. This was built in the mid-17th century by the shogunal family, and it was a second residence for them, a slight retreat in the city. There was actually an elephant living here in the middle of the 18th century for a few years, a gift from Southeast Asia. Foreign diplomats and visiting heads of state were put up here in the late 19th century.
2: Again, this green patch, which still today exists and now is a public
0: garden. So we've left behind Shiadome. We're seeing Hamariku Gardens disappearing in the distance, and we're leaving Takeshiba Station. The next bit of the reclamation story comes in the middle of the 19th century. The Americans have just arrived, and so the shogunate, just before it falls, decides to build some small little islands as batteries to prevent foreign ships getting close again. It planned 11, it built five. But very quickly, the shogunate would fall. Then in the late 19th century, the new Meiji government begins to reclaim land in bigger projects out into the bay. They start on a sandbar, and we can see the early results of that over to our right now. That initial bout of modern reclamation continues almost up until the Second World War, into the 1930s. Then in the post-war period, in the 1960s specifically, the reclamation picks up speed again. Already in 1960, Tange Kenzo, the architect of post-war Japan, has suggested building out over the whole bay, 23 kilometers side to side. That still hasn't happened. But reclamation begins in the early 60s on the part of this reclaimed land that will arrive at soon, Odaiba. Initially, though, it's designated as a port, as a terminal for container ships. Container shipping is just taking off. There are still facilities there for that. But Tokyo is not a major port. The major port around here is Yokohama, just down the coast. Tokyo still struggles to compete. So in the 1970s, there's a pivot in official thinking. To connect these reclaimed blocks of land to the city itself. In the mid-1980s these take form as the plans for a teleport as a telecommunications center, a new sub-center rather like Shinjuku on the west side of the city. But it's only in the 90s that there's redevelopment of the areas that were previously devoted to transport and to industry. One of the results of that rethinking is the bridge we're about to go over. This is the Rainbow Bridge. It was built between 1987 and 1993, and it has four different ways of getting across the bay. We're curving around onto it now. There's an expressway, there's a roadway, there's also this rail, and there's a pedestrian possibility. And as we curve, we see the remnants of the water in the bay spreading out around us together with two of those batteries that were built in the mid-19th century. And as we start going across the bridge, we can see these various stages of modern reclamation. On our right side now, again, we're facing backwards. We're beginning to see the two big blocks built in the pre-war period, Kachidoki, Harumi. There were plans for an expo here in 1940, which never materialized. Tokyo was also meant to have the Olympics then. That didn't happen either. And then on our left side, we can begin to glimpse Odaiba, the area through which we'll be passing and which tells us an awful lot about recent development in the city. We've passed the apex of the bridge. It's got to be big enough to let ships go underneath. And we're going to get off at the next stop soon after we start curling round onto Odaiba, It's called Odaiba Kaihin Koen. We're gonna spend a little bit of time at a beach. So we'll get off at Odaiba Kaihin Koen and we'll walk down to the beach. We'll meet you there.
2: Odaiba Kaihin
0: We've made our way down from the station through a curiously deserted apartment complex, crossed a road, and now we find ourselves next to a beach. This is Odaiba Seaside Park. Straight ahead of us, we can see the Rainbow Bridge we've just come across. Beyond that, the city, including, happily, Tokyo Tower. We can also see a couple of the barrier islands straight ahead of us, before the bridge. One of them has been incorporated into this park. And this is a new kind of pleasure space for Tokyoites. Not a bustling entertainment area around a station, but a place where you can come on weekends, on holidays. It's one of the places to escape the city. On our left, on the other side of the road, we can see a sequence of slightly strange buildings. The first of this is called Joypolis. It's an indoor amusement centre chain. It was started by Sega in 1994. It then went on to open 11 of these but then had corporate problems, corporate losses in the early noughties which means that only five are still going which includes this flagship but now the whole enterprise is majority owned by China animations. A sign of the times perhaps. Beyond that is a shopping centre Aqua City. Everything has water in it around here. And then at the end a couple of hotels. A Hilton and a Nikko. We're going to turn left on this boardwalk now and walk down it a ways to the next station until we see, oddly enough, the Statue of Liberty on our left. On our right, we can also see some piers for pleasure boats. And there are some people who say that to understand Tokyo properly, you need to see it from the water.
1: As in our other walks in Tokyo, it can be hard to imagine what was here before the most recent bouts of development. Here's sociologist Yoshimi Shunya explaining how the bay has been transformed in recent times and how it's still possible to see older traces. The
2: process after the Tokugawa, and especially after the restoration, is a process to reclaim and to make the Tokyo Bay smaller and smaller. This is basic process, and especially the rapid economic growth era in 1960s. The Tokyo Bay has shrinked. Today, Tokyo Bay is not so large. Land is very cheap in those areas. That is the whole reason why uh, people can establish a new building over there very easily. But important thing, if you only see the area, expanding area, for example, uh, Toyosu, Odaiba, or Harumi, or many, many islands, if you only see the... Overground area, hyper modern and uh, seabed park like uh, modernity area. If you are interested in Tokyo Bay, you need to see this transformation of landscape from water side, from seaside, or from riverside. My recommendation is you need to get on the boat from, for example, Nihonbashi. Please move around the river. And please move around the bay from the, the water side. Maybe you can see completely different landscape. The trajectory and the transformation of the city, including the past. Because on the face, over the ground, you only can see the current change, 21st century. But if you see from water side, you can see what happened in 80th century what happened in the 19th century and early 20th century. All the process you can see near to Tokyo Bay, the Nihonbashi River is the central river in downtown Tokyo. And if you move uh, throughout this river side, you still can see the block for the castle that were used in 16th and 17th century. Still you can see. And you also can see many bridges constructed in 19th century. So all the historical traces can be seen from the riverside and waterside.
1: The connection between the city, its people and the water goes a long way back, as historian Jinai Hidenobu emphasized in our walk through the Low City, commoners' capital. Here he explains how it continues into the present.
3: There are many, many functions, meanings of water for Japanese people. Not only functional, pragmatic uh, elements. So, of course, uh, for agriculture and for fishing. And, uh, of course, transportation. To go to uh, enjoy theatre, Edo people used to go with boat for rich rich class. Also, religiously, spiritually, water had a big meaning. So many temples, uh, shrines, were located close to water. Also because there are a lot of fishermen's villages around Tokyo. Typical one is Tsukuda Island, but also Asakusa originally was a village of fishermen. And Fukaga, of course, and Shinagawa, typical. Shinagawa's community, local community, uh, organized every June, maybe, a parade on the boat to go to uh, Odaiba Beach Park, bringing their Omikoshi, bringing shrine, and they put inside of water of sea, and they do procession inside of the water, small bay. Still now, I looked once; it was emotional. There was no tourist, (laughs) only local communities people.
0: And sometimes, indeed, Tokyoites do get on boats. At the weekend, on a nostalgia trip, there's a huge enthusiasm for seeing the past now, from the Sumida River, for example. But that's not generally their everyday life. They live on the ground, maybe up in the sky in an apartment or an office, and then underground to get from place to place. Ahead of us, still in the distance, we can now see the Statue of Liberty. But also on our left, we can see an extraordinary building, two towers, bridges linking them with a huge bull in the middle of one of the bridges. This is Fuji TV, a private TV company that was founded in 1957 in the first wave of television entrepreneurialism. They moved here in 1997, and the building is by somebody we've met on our other walks around Tokyo. This is Tange Kenzo. We saw his Olympic Stadium from 1964 over in Yoyogi. We also saw his new metropolitan government buildings in Shinjuku, those from the 1990s. This has a bit in common with those, a kind of circuit board design, but with this curious eye-catching ball in the middle. You can hear about both of those buildings in our walk Neo-Tokyo. We can still see the Statue of Liberty ahead, but we're branching left now through a gate marked Skywalk on a path that will gradually lead us up to her. So we're on a viewing platform now, next to the Statue of Liberty. Again, we can see the Rainbow Bridge and Fuji TV at our back. Why is she in a seaside park more or less in the middle of Tokyo? Well, it's not the Statue of Liberty. She's a replica of a replica of the Statue of Liberty. The original, of course, is in New York, a gift from France to America. The replica, much smaller, is actually still in the middle of the River Seine. And this is a replica of that one. The original replica came here for a year of France. Japan has yearly celebrations of relations with other countries at regular intervals, and France is a favourite. And when she went back to Paris, people here thought that they would like one too, and so they commissioned this, which now stands here, somehow appropriate amidst Joypolis and Fuji TV. Since the middle of the 19th century, Japan has voraciously consumed Western culture. The relationship, of course, has been problematic. But come the 1980s, of course, the country was rich enough, or more importantly, companies were rich enough, to buy up vast tracts, whether it was impressionist paintings or golf courses in California. Those days are now past. Many of those assets have returned to their countries of origin. Even these days, after maybe three lost decades of economic growth, the appetite for these things remains strong. So we're going to turn our back on her and on the bit of the bay that we can see. We're going to head between the TV station on our left, the hotels on our right, and then branch right to Daiba Station, where we're going to reboard the train. の back on the platform but this time the trains go both ways we don't want to go back to shimbashi we're taking the train for toyosu We're just leaving Daiba now and again we're facing backwards out of the rear of the train. Despite all the building around us, for many years this area was a wasteland and there were extended discussions about what to do with it. It stays largely barren through the 70s and the 80s. Over on our left now we're beginning to see the ship-shaped building on the shore. This is the Museum of Maritime Science. It was built in 1973, largely funded by a foundation headed by Sasakawa Ryōichi. His foundation also provided the support for us to make these podcasts. And that building was the centre of a space expo in 1978 at the height of the Cold War. NASA sees great value in sending big rockets to Japan to delight the kids were plans to turn this whole area into a teleport in the 1980s. And there was another expo planned in 1994 as the kickoff event. But the citizens revolt, the economy is in the doldrums, and the whole thing is cancelled. And it's not really until the end of the century that things pick up. We've seen Fuji TV already. We're just leaving Tokyo International Cruise Terminal but that's even later. It's now on our left, a very modern building. This is very recent. It went up in 2020, supposedly for the Olympics, which, of course, were postponed and very under-attended thanks to COVID. The problem is that the Rainbow Bridge doesn't let panamax size ships through to the old port in Harumi, closer to the shore. Yokohama was taking all the cruise ships that came to Japan, in fact, the first cruise ship to dock there was only earlier this month, March 2023. And on our left, we see another new arrival, the midai Can, the Museum of Emerging Science and Innovation, also in 2020. It includes real-time information from seismometers around Japan. We're now leaving Telecom Center Station. We've curved around the top of this train's route. And on our left, we see the corporate buildings. On our right, though, there's a very clear transition to a different kind of landscape, with terminals, with warehouses, and with cranes. This is still container shipping central, or at least Tokyo's attempt to get some of the container shipping action. But quickly, therefore, the train is curving round. Passengers don't need to go and unload container ships. And we're heading back down towards further development. We're curving round again, leaving the land known as Odaiba. And over to our right, we can see yet more reclamation going on further into the bay. More containers, more wasteland. As we leave Aomi Station now, between these blocks of reclamation on our right, we can also see a bridge skying over the horizon further out. Tange's 1960 vision of the whole bay covered, 23 kilometers over to the other side, is not yet realized, but the bay is slowly filling up. That's the Tokyo Gate Bridge. That was 2012. It's high enough for big tankers, big cruise liners to pass underneath. Even further linking both sides of the bay is a 24-kilometre bridge and tunnel. That came along in 1997. We're just leaving Tokyo Big Site. That's the name of the huge convention centre now on our right. It was built all the way out here in 1996. Its most distinctive thing is this central building with four pyramids upside down. There are also three massive exhibition halls here. It's the biggest convention center in the region. But it's also used when the youth tribes need to assemble. We met them in Shibuya in our walk on Neo-Tokyo. This is where Anime Japan holds its annual shindig. That's the industry getting together. It's also where Comiket comes. That's an NPO fan administered organization for doujinshi, self produced small magazines paying tribute to your favorite characters. There was meant to be wrestling here in the Olympics of 2021, but the funds dried up and it had to be moved elsewhere. We're just leaving Ariake station now. This bit of land has in fact been here since the pre-war period, but it's only slowly filling in. We've got a small world's miniature theme park ahead of us on our left. We've got theaters, we've got a tennis complex. We've got some apartment buildings closer to the freeway, but still Ariake is largely vacant lots. We're leaving another Ariake station and we're heading towards Shijo Mai. It literally means in front of the market. The fish market of Tokyo used to be at Tsukiji, near where we started our journey on this train, near the Hamarikyu Gardens. It opened there in 1935, but it outgrew the site and it moved here in 2018 to the purpose-built structures we can now see on our left. Vegetables are on the other side of the road. First, though, the site had to be cleaned up. It was a gas plant. When I look at these now, I think of Billingsgate in London, which moved from close to the city down to the Isle of Dogs, or Covent Garden, now down in Vauxhall. We met their original buildings in our walks around London. Still, though, even out here in a more inconvenient place, this is the largest fish market in the world, and it sets the prices... For fish worldwide. It moves about 1,628 tons of fish a day. That's worth about 14 million. At New Year's, the first tuna realizes a huge sum of money. A tuna can be caught near Boston on the east coast of the US. It'll be iced. It'll be freighted. It will arrive here in time for the five o'clock auction. Sold, its price thereby established, and then chopped up with some of it maybe making its way back to a sushi bar in downtown Boston for consumption the next day. But we've left the markets behind us, and we've got two more stops. We're going to get off at the end of the line, Toyosu. Again, a pre-war development, land reclaimed using rubble from the 1923 earthquake. And around here, until very recently... There was industry power and gas plants a dockyard warehouses it's only from the 1990s that the development here like the rest of the line has taken off corporate headquarters hotels even places to live maybe this is where we see the tokyo of the future to think about this we're going to get off at this last stop and make our way back down to a park we can see on our left, Toyosu Park. So we've made our way a few hundred yards from the station through a park filled with kids playing with parents. We've had football, baseball, badminton. There's a couple of cherry trees in bloom in front of us. In the distance, we can see the arc of the Rainbow Bridge. And around us, we've got new residential towers and a few office buildings. It's a strange place. It's a very recent place. But it tells us something about where Tokyo might be going. Tokyo, for now, isn't going to stop growing, even though the Japanese population as a whole is declining. It peaked in 2008 at 128 million. On current projections, it's going to drop as far as 70 million in 2060. That's losing 50 million people or more in 50 years. But not in Tokyo. Even in greater Tokyo, there are suburbs with abandoned houses, but the city as a whole, on the evidence of our walks, continues to thrive, to attract the Japanese young, to attract global corporations, and even rubberneckers like us. But Japan and Tokyo are better than most about staying ahead of the curve. In the early post-war period, looking at the small apartments in which many people lived, A British ambassador famously scoffed that the Japanese lived in rabbit hutches. It's easy enough, looking at some of the new development, even the luxury towers we saw on other walks in the centre of the city, to think that the same is still true. But when you think about what you need to house a population of nearly 40 million, when you realise that most people are housed in livable neighbourhoods with decent amenities and good connections... When you think that you can get quite quickly to the places you need and want to go to work, shop and recreate, like this newish town in the bay, then you might admit that we could all learn something here.
1: Historicity Hi- is written and presented by Angus Lokya and produced by Yelena Sofranievich. See the episode notes for the other walks and follow Historicity wherever you get your podcasts.